Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It's a case that sits on my desk every day I look at this case. Every day it sits one of the, it sits right in front of my face. If it just happened for no for no reason, there's no reason. We believe an individual who was capable of doing this to Mr. Lee probably did this to other people before and we believe he's obviously he's capable of doing it to additional people. I firmly believe he's an extremely dangerous person. And and that's why I keep thinking I'm gonna find him because he's gonna do it again. From KYW News Radio. In Philadelphia. Philly. Philadelphia. He's a wonderful dad. He's a wonderful dad. I love my dad. I love my dad. I don't know how many times I can say I love my dad. These are true stories. About unsolved crimes. I mean this this is horrible what happened to this man. Um it, it's it's just not fair. We just don't know how long it would take to uh to find some answer. I don't know what else to like to ask besides, you know, we need help. Please, I need I need help. I'm Kristen Johansson. I'm Tom Rickert. This is Gone Cold. Yo, you wanna see the squash? Yeah. Plant too much flour. See this is starting to produce some flower but this is a plumeria but it's getting too cold this, this here is a tuberose Ooh. tuberose oh, it smells lovely this is yeah. so I just got done this interview uh, with Nari and her siblings and I have to say that's probably one of the most poignant interviews I've ever been a part of um I'm driving back right now, which I probably shouldn't be, but... This is just a grass with a couple trees there here, a couple pear tree, nectarine, whatever. They are the sweetest family. They just watched me drive off um, just to make sure I was okay as I drove off, and uh, they are, the three of them... Uh, they gave me two flowers here. Yeah. Oh, in your my room. Oh, you are, you, you have are. no yeah. idea how much this means to me. Really, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's, it's a smells good. It, they use that to make fragrance. <sighs> called tuberose. Tuberose. Thank you so much. That plumeria over there is fragrant. That one's not fragrant. I, I planned that only this year. And the one brother, um, the youngest, actually uh, developed a garden. Uh, he wanted to bring a little bit of joy in and... They are Buddhists, so he said that he planted the flowers so that he could 
Um, so to uh, make offering at, at the family altar, you saw that. We used to have more flour there all the time. But now we plant our own flowers, so we, we cut from our own garden. Fall of 2013, I start planting some peony flower, and and then and then I continue to uh, build on it. I, so this is the, the peony bloom in the spring, so you don't see that now. See that's peony, row of peony. Just a really lovely family, and we will make sure we do a good job with this one. I made that recording in the car, driving back from where Don Lee lived with his family in South Philadelphia. There's a plot of land adjacent to the property where Lido, Don's youngest son, planted a garden. The row house is on Volmer Street, across from a school. It's the home Don Lee bought in 1997 after saving money selling fruit from a truck. And it's where he died early one morning in April of 2013. Lido and his older siblings, Han and Nari, invited me into their family home to tell me their father's story. And that story starts in Vietnam. Uh, My name is Han. I'm the first son of Don Lee. Don grew up in a small village near the southeastern coast of Vietnam, he was driven from a young age. Before we know him, he's a very educated person, and throughout his life, he's a farmer too. He become a monk for, a, I don't know how many years, because I wasn't there. <laughs> when he actually done with the monkhood, then he, got, he married to my mom, and that time he's still farmer, you know, there's no other factory work, working, there's none of those kind of things. Every year we just look in the sky and then there's a farming season, there's a growing crop season, and that's throughout the year, that's the whole cycle there. Don got a job with the police department as a communication liaison officer in Bok Lu the city near his village in South Vietnam. After he's become a monk, he also get himself training, get commissioned to a um, police academy, anything like that. And he went through that and he become a policeman. Han takes out a small photo and shows it to me. It's his father, Don, as a 26-year-old man. He's wearing a white police uniform with patches on each shoulder. And... And when we get to the interview in the camp, we sh- he actually showed the pictures. Hans holding this photo, taken in 1970, that two decades later would save his family's life. And that is a picture. You know, it's interesting when you talk to 
people in South Vietnam about the war, even in the late 80s when the war was still fairly recent, and you'd, you'd refer to the war and they'd look at you in a puzzled way. They'd say, you mean before 1975, because this is a people that has been at war continually for decades. First they fought the French, then they fought the U.S., then they fought the Cambodians. So the war to Americans was just one of many to the Vietnamese. I'm Pat Loeb, the City Hall Bureau Chief for KYW News Radio. In the late 80s and early 90s, I was a Southeast Asia correspondent for a number of radio networks. And I was based uh, in the Philippines, but traveled throughout Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. On April 30th, 1975, communist North Vietnamese forces invaded the southern capital of Saigon, ending both the Vietnam War and Don Lee's job as a police officer in the South Vietnamese government. It was a civil war between the North and South, the U.S. back to the South, communist bloc back to the North, and it went on for years and years and spread to Cambodia and Laos. It became the war in Southeast Asia. Vietnam, ultimately, the communists prevailed, and those countries did indeed become communist. By the end of the 70s, Don's family had grown to six. Don and his wife Sarong were raising four children in a Vietnam decimated by war. There was nothing in Vietnam. Vietnam was very poor and had difficulty developing. What kind of poverty are we talking about? Just a lack of things. Couldn't get anything important. Anything that you couldn't make in Vietnam just didn't exist. And then there was no money for infrastructure. So if something had been damaged in the war, it stayed damaged. It was kind of frozen in time as the rest of the world was progressing. Vietnam had what it had in the 60s. Occasionally, communist officials would visit Don's village. They would take the men in for questioning, asking them if they'd ever opposed the Viet Cong. Don's children say many people were tortured. Some were never returned. It's hard to explain when they actually, you know, come to the house and destroy your property and take you away for a couple days. Don't know where they're taking you. By the time they you know, get home, you know, your skin is bumping, your you know, face is brewing, all that. We don't know what they did. They destroy our property, but not really have anything against him to, you know, beat him up or anything like that. He just do his job. That's why they don't really beat him up or anything like that, but also give him a hard time at the same time as well. Don wanted freedom for himself and his family. We know that it's not the life that we want. So he went after it in early January of 1989. That's why he took us away. So the journey that we actually came to the U.S. is it's 18 months in the making. The family spent the first day getting out of Vietnam. January 1989, that we actually escaped. Don put his family on a riverboat, and they left the village. I was like 14, 15 around that time. How many kids are there? Four kids. Four kids. I 
I may I may be sixteen, seventeen at that time. I am Nary Lee N A R Y L Y, Don Lee's daughter. Oh, I was about like ten years old. Ten years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Lito Lee. Uh, spelled L E E T O L Y. I'm a Don Lee last son. Oh, I was young, but I can still remember. I mean, I was like ten years old. You can still remember a lot of things. Were you scared as a ten-year-old? I was with my family. Took the bus, took the train, whatever the mean of transportation that we can get. Late at night, they made it to the northern border of Vietnam. They slept in a bus station, 150 miles from home. The next morning, they crossed over into Cambodia. You know, my hat is off to them because most people left by boat and just went to another harbor uh, because the crossing by land was incredibly difficult. Um, there are mountains. Very, I would say that very few people chose that route into Thailand. The family hired motorcycles to take them deep into Cambodia. They had some distant relatives in the capital, Phnom Penh. They stayed with them for about a week. They had to hide. It was dangerous to travel through Cambodia, especially if you were a refugee. Their goal was to get to a resettlement camp in Thailand. I mean, people had harrowing experiences leaving, and you almost couldn't believe it could possibly be worth it for them to go through that, to get to a camp where they were rolling the dice as to whether or not they'd ever get to the U.S. But they just, like, this faith that they were going to do it. The journey was treacherous, crossing mountains and rivers, miles of hard terrain between the border of Cambodia and Thailand, on foot. Years earlier in Vietnam, Don had stepped on a landmine. He limped the entire way. It's not like, oh, you buy a ticket and you come to U.S. There is no way like that. We walk. We have a, we brought some food for us. Which was like what? Dry food, dry, crispy, dry food, gathers some more, you know, food that's kind of edible or anything like that along the way. We walk night and night and night. If there was some light, there was light from the moon. We rest during the day because we scared that there will be a capture going on or a soldier in, in the jungle there. We have to climb some mountain, cross some river. We are talking through the jungle now. We weren't equipped. We weren't prepared. We, we had no proper footwear, and we walked on rice field after harvest, after they cut the rice, and there's uh, the roots of the rice uh, at the roots. It, it's pretty sharp, it stick out from the ground, it's sharp, and we walk on those things and it hurt our foot, it bleed. Our foot was bleeding, that was, that was difficult. After 10 nights walking barefoot through the jungle, the family, exhausted, feet bleeding, finally made it to a refugee camp. It was six weeks since Don Lee and his family left their home in Vietnam. Gone Cold, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Gone Cold. We came to across 
from Cambodian to to Thailand. Got to a um, refugee camp. We stayed in Thailand for 18 months. For 18 months. We don't have any money. We, we only got whatever given to us every day. It's pretty miserable. It's kind of like um, being in jail, really. You can't leave the refugee camp. You have a cot. Uh, you have no things. You're very much fending for yourself, just as you were back in Vietnam for a while. We just had to get through and say that, okay, we are in the refugee camp now, and the UNHCR actually take care of us now. But uh, you, your life does go on. Uh, I mean, people met, fell in love, celebrated their birthday. You know, they, they lived. Yeah, they lived in those camps for as long as they needed to. With, you know, just unshakable faith the whole time that they were going to get out and go to the U.S. That was all anybody wanted to do was to get to the U.S. That's what Don wanted. But getting here wasn't so easy. During the refugee crisis in the late 80s and early 90s, the people were just leaving Vietnam en masse. And that included North Vietnamese. The U.S., because there were just so many people, and so many of them were actually North Vietnamese and had fought the U.S., became very picky about who they would take. And you had to have proof that you were from the South. Back in Vietnam, he actually did service before 75. You had to have proof that you had helped them. That means that he got some rank there. That you were felt threatened by your position uh, as a, a U.S. ally. After 75, those people over there, they actually give a hard time. Without that proof, they deemed you an economic refugee and sent you back. Don needed proof. The family destroyed most of their documents when the Viet Cong arrived in their village out of fear that Don would be jailed if they found out he was a South Vietnamese police officer. But they saved a few things, including that photo. Don takes out a small photo and shows it to me. Shows it to me. Don's 26 years old. old. His hair is short. White police uniform. And when we get to the interview in the camp... Hans holding the picture. picture. He actually showed the picture. Save his family's life. That is the picture. We have an interview with ambassador. We pass, and we come to this country. Don Lee and his family finally made it to America in June of 1990. A few months later, they settled in Philadelphia. We go to school. We studying. We studying every day. Come home. My dad very happy when see the kids study. He's very happy. I love people who study. I love people who study. Don Lee became an American citizen. Every election day, he left work early to vote before the polls closed. Don and his wife worked hard, and they saved up enough to buy a food cart. They started selling fruit on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. We began doing that fruit salad truck when 
is all his idea. He worked very hard every day. I asked him, say that, don't you think you thinking about retirement, staying home, relax a little since you work for so hard? He said, no, I still can't work. I have to go to work. I, I have to go to work. Every day for the last 15 years or so, we asked him, say, that you want to do anything else besides doing this day in, day out? Say no, he's, this is it. This is the life that he wants. This is the life that I enjoy the most. Don Lee found his American dream. He started a business, bought a house for his family. He sent his kids to school. Don sold fruit from that truck for 18 years, from May of 1995 until Thursday, April 18th, 2013. So how familiar are you with stabbing cases, stabbing death cases? And have you worked with a lot of them? In 30 years of being here, I'd venture to say close to a 1,000. Ready? Yeah, yeah. Right. Detective James Doherty, assigned to the Special Investigations Unit, the Homicide Division, Philadelphia Police Department. Detailed out of homicide for a period of time. I was on part of the Gun Violence Task Force when we initiated that here in the city. And then I worked on the, pre, uh, the priest pedophile case for the Archdi- against the Archdiocese. So when I finished that, I came back here to homicide. What's your total? How long have you been a police officer? Uh, it's approximately 39 years. couple is walking home from a bar when a man approaches them. We believe that there is, there is a male approximate age of 20 to 26, medium build, approximate height of about 5'5 five, five to maybe 5'10. He starts to briefly chat, says he's not from the neighborhood. It's a hoodie type sweatshirt that he did have on, possibly uh, Chuck Taylor sneakers based on not the surveillance tapes, but the, the two individuals that he encountered a short time before the, the killing had occurred. While talking with the stranger, the boyfriend gets an uneasy feeling. He wants to leave. This couple uh, grew apprehensive about the, the way, the manners that this, this male was, was showing them to the point where they knew it was important in their minds to get away from this person. He brushes off the conversation and pulls his girlfriend's arm. The stranger begins to tail them. He actually tried to go after those individuals. The boyfriend looks behind, glimpses the stranger. He tries to get his girlfriend to hurry up. At one point in the video, the stranger looks like he's reaching for something in his pocket. He tries to keep up with the couple. But they were able to get to a well-lit area uh, near Oregon, on Oregon Avenue, and we believe that thwarted them being victims of being robbed. I believe after I've talked to them and shown them what we have, they believe that they were going to be victims, except there were two of them. Stabbings are different than gun, because with a gun, I can kill both of you or shoot both of you. But with stabbing, when I'm stabbing you, you're running and screaming, and that it gets very complicated. That's why usually people with knives only rob one person. Moments later... Another camera picks up a shadowy figure coming around a school fence. It's the stranger. He is seen out there in numerous locations during that night. By surveillance video? Yes. He notices a man loading a truck. That man is Don Lee. Everything is prepared for him already. It just said that this is all all you have to do is just start the car and, you know, go to work at that morning. 
Most of the Lee household is awake. His one son was just inside. Han's getting ready for his military service training. I was in the military at that time. His bedroom was on the first floor front. I prepared myself with all the uniform and everything else ready to go out. Mrs. Lee is upstairs getting dressed. Don's third child, Nato, is cutting fruit in the kitchen. Lido's already at work. I have to commute to work in Wilmington in the evening, and I come back home in the morning around 8. Nari's at her home across town. Don's loading the truck. He's actually uh, in the hallway, in and out of the house for many times. The door swings open. There's a slight creak each time it shuts. Han hears the door. Open, shut, open, shut, open, shut. Then, nothing. Han looks up towards his bedroom door. And then suddenly, a knock. Just like that. Knocking at the window window downstairs where I stay. I thought that he actually locked himself out. I was like, Dad, why don't you take the key with you? Why you lock yourself out? I didn't know any better. I went out and opened the door. Mr. Lee was, was in the process of loading his fruit van uh, from his house on Volmer Street. And during the course of him doing that, he was attacked. His, his son, he heard his father. He heard the commotion outside. And then I saw he's knocking at the window, and then he started to fall. And he responded immediately and found him laying there, uh, bleeding to death. I rushed to hold him. Uh, he was right right between the fruit truck and, and his own truck when the first you see the first drops of blood. I see his like bleeding. I said, what happened? And he can't say anything anymore. There was a blood trail, excessive blood amount going right from that location, approximately 12 feet to his front door. His eyes look at me and he can't say anything. He can't talk anything. That's no, no strength anymore to do so. Maybe he tried to say something, but he can't. It was multiple stab wounds. He suffered multiple stab wounds, uh, severe stab wounds to the, to the uh, neck area and to the um, trunk of his body. Um, Do you know Mr. Lee had any defensive wounds? Like how was this, can you tell how he acted? Yes, the, there, there were defensive wounds. So he was putting up a fight? I think he tried. Um, I think he tried. Called my mom and my sister out. Mr. His, his wife was also in the residence at the time it happened. And I called the police and all that. And then notified other members of the family. At that time, we get up to work and I hear the phone call. First, I hear my, um, my home phone. And then later on, I couldn't get to, to pick it up. And later on, I hear the cell phone. I know it must be important. And my mom... My brother called me and my mom said, something happened to your dad, come over, son, come over. And I tell my mom, come down, mom, come down. I didn't know that 
you know, he was stabbed like this. I didn't know that he was killed like this. And I said, come down. But, but by the time I get to the corner of the house, the police all surrounded, and I couldn't come to the house. When I turned up around the block, I saw a lot of blood. And the thing is, my father had an accident before. He broke his leg. And that was, I thought, that's what happened to him. How can he have so much blood with a broken leg? It doesn't make sense. Calm. He was unresponsive. By the time the medic unit respond, responded there, he was unresponsive. Um, yeah, he was probably dead at that point. There's no, no witness. Uh, this didn't see anything. But they were, you know, trying to, you know, do their best. Took him to the hospital with the chance of him living. But, you know, he was. I believe he was dead on arrival. There was a lot of blood. Oh, yes, there was an excessive amount of blood. When I came in, I saw the blood in front of the house. That's all I see. And then we went to the police stations. Sitting there for some time, and then all of a sudden, the detective said, I'm sorry about your loss. That's all I hear. That is the worst day of our lives and our families, too. To this very day, the image in my head, the image in my mind, is still there like I'm just can't can forget it. It's just there and it's not gonna be go away anytime soon I think. I don't want it to go away either. Why is it that you don't want to get rid of that image? It's my dad. Easy. It's my dad. Even if he's covered in blood It's still my dad. Gone Cold will be right back. Welcome back to Gone Cold. What do you feel comfortable sharing with us about the investigation so far? Well, what we've done is, we did, back when the original case happened, there were, there were numerous, numerous people interviewed um, by the assigned detectives, uh, and every possible lead was, was tracked down. There's been reward offered. Uh, we continue to talk to people down in the neighborhood there where this occurred to see if there's anyone that, that has any additional information and uh, may have been fearful to come forward with. And we continue every day to monitor reports of people being stopped to see if there's any we see anyone that fits this person's description. Uh, to this date, we've, we've been unsuccessful, but we will continue to do so. And it's a, it's a case that sits on my desk every day I look at this case. Every day it sits, one of the, it sits right in front of my face. Do you think you have a motive? I believe it was robbery. At the time, that's what the idea come up, saying that that was a robbery. But nothing stolen. His wallet is still with him. I still have his wallet. A couple dollars in his wallet is still there. There's nothing just stolen. Everything's just nothing missing you know mr lee had no known he, he was well well liked by everyone in his community uh, i have we have not found anyone that did not like mr lee until this very day 
we still don't have any closure on that. We believe he was out, out looking that night to rob someone, and he eventually settled on Mr. Lee because he hadn't found any other victims. I think they feel that, uh, I, I don't want to say abandoned, but I, I think they, they just, they feel like this happened in the past and, and not very many people are paying attention to it now because, they, uh, mainly because the news is about sensationalism. Old stuff isn't so sensational, you know. Um, and these people, I think they've suffered, you know, terribly by, you know, what, what's happened to their dad. We remember him the way that I remember him when I was little. He were took care of me, of the family. He's a nice man, he's a great man, he's a generous man, wonderful dad, wonderful husband. My one son, no, he went to Penn, so he knew him, he used to get stuff from him all the time. Was your first son say about who he was? Or Just a really or? decent man, you know, a very decent man that... Um, and that's everyone has said that. Everything that he done, he just done for us. It's nothing that he done for himself, hardly. Our heart has a big hole. Every day we think about him, and we keep thinking when we'll be find the justice for him. And you can see in their eyes, their lives, I mean, they don't have, there's no, no happiness in their lives. There's they're just not a lot of hope for the future. It's just not that bright anymore. And he was like the center part for their family. And and the way he, and when you read what he did, I mean, it's, and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, this person, whoever did this, I firmly believe he's, he's an extremely dangerous person. And, and that's why I keep thinking, I'm going to find him because he's going to do it again. Sometimes I just sit on the stair, you know, stairway, and just hopefully he just walk inside the house but I know it's not gonna happen it's a tragedy it's a, it's a tragedy for the city of Philadelphia to have lost an individual who worked so hard to, to get here to the United States and now we don't have any of those last last hug or last kiss or last saying the words telling kids we don't have none of those things. And then once he was here, worked so hard to uh, provide a living for his family, and not just a living, but also to put his, his, all of his children through college. Hopefully everybody realized that we, we need help. That's what we're asking for. And to end up as a victim of, of such a, to us, it's a senseless tragedy. My mom always say, she hope before she pass away, we will find who's the killer, and so our heart can be better. Please, I need, I need help. I don't know what else to, like, to ask besides, you know, we need help, that's, that's the big thing. We believe in lighting incense, hopefully some asking God for justice. We pray, offering, Prayer and offering to uh, to the soul or spirit of my father. My brother 
flower, flower right there. That plumeria, that's fragrant. That one's not fragrant. I, I planted that only this year. Last last spring, we cut about a thousand stem of peony. You know, she come out. At least see some things beautiful, mm. some flowers. We believe that the thing that we does it it matters, and and his spirit or soul knows or overlooking over us. We, we just don't know how long it will take to uh, to find some answer. We, so we just continue to live as we do. Talk to his kids, and they're the ones I think you really need to talk to. And talk to his daughter. Uh, she is really, uh, I mean, she misses her father every day. My name is Nari, the only daughter, and I am looking for justice for my dad. There's surveillance video of the suspect on our website, kywnewsradio.com. There's a link to the surveillance video in the show notes, too. If you follow us on Twitter at GoneColdPhilly, We'll tweet it out as well. Police believe the suspect is familiar with the neighborhood. So if you think you may recognize this person, please call Homicide Detectives, 215-592-5859. And there's a couple ways you can contact them anonymously. You can call 215-686-TIPS. You can actually email an anonymous tip to tips at phillypolice.com or go to their police department webpage to submit a tip directly. And a quick personal note. All the families that we cover, that we interview, that led us into their homes to talk about the worst time of their lives remain close to our hearts. We keep in touch with them on a regular basis. So on behalf of them, if you know anything at all or have the faintest memory of something that may have happened around that date or you may have seen something, please call police. Gone Cold is created and produced in the KYW News Radio studios in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Obi Daz. You can follow Kristen and me on Twitter. I'm at T-Rick, T-E-E-R-I-C-K. She's at Kristen Johansson. If you like the show, please subscribe. And if you want to help more people find out about us, leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way. Thank you for listening to Don's Story. And until next time, this is Gone Cold. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.